Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Let's pray. Oh Lord, even now, even now in this very moment, in the power of your victory over sin and death, we ask you right now in this moment to bless the opening and the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit of the living God, make this word a word of power and a word of peace, a word of power to convert those who have been resisting you and a word of peace to conform those who are yours to the blessed image of Jesus Christ, our only Lord and Savior. Amen. When we got to school in the morning, there were no less than three fire engines in front of the school and there was smoke everywhere. As we got closer to the school, there were tire tracks from the street up the sidewalk and into that huge front yard that led up to the steps of the school. There were no less than four cars that had collided with each other. It was brutal wreckage and there was an ambulance and several body bags. The year was 1988, my senior year at North Hollywood High School. The principal didn't let us through the front door. He got the whole student body gathered on that front part of the schoolyard and he talked to us through a bullhorn and he said, nobody died. In fact, this was all staged by a friend of mine who runs the special effects department at Universal. And this is to teach you all a lesson about drunk driving on prom night. And then he proceeded to lecture us about the dangers thereof, and you know the deal. He was trying to show us like this unmistakable picture that would awaken us to the reality that is at stake. I never got a chance to meet James. I hope to sit down with him one day soon in heaven, but I am convinced that if James was around, that's exactly the kind of stunt that he would do. Because his book is absolutely full of these vivid illustrations that show us in stunning, beautiful colors the promises and the blessings that we're after, and also these horrific illustrations that show us and almost, uh, and, and almost scare us into seeing what is at stake. He gives us in our text today in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 1, a vividly negative illustration of who you don't want to be, the crash you don't want to end up in. And he gives us a vividly positive illustration in verse 25 of what we want to be. And this all follows the unmistakable command in verse 22. So we read the word of God from verses 22 down through verse 25. But be doers of the word not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anybody's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like this guy who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror and he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all of his doing. There's an unmistakable binary here. You're either doing 
or you are merely hearing. It says in verse 22, doers of the word. It says in verse 23, not a doer of the word. It says in verse 25, the one who is a doer who acts on the word. Or the contrast is, verse 22, one who is a hearer only. Or in verse 24, merely a hearer of the word. You see, there's a binary here between blessing or being deceived. It ends in verse 25 by being blessed in what you're doing. But it begins in verse 22 by being deceived or actually by deceiving yourself. There's a binary choice here between acting and forgetting acting on what he hears and sees. That's what it says in verse 25, the one who, who, who is a doer who acts on what he sees. Or, verses 24 and 25, one who forgets, one who forgets and doesn't do anything with it. We have the choice to either deceive ourselves or by God's spirit to place ourselves in the place to receive blessing. We have the choice to deceive ourselves, verse 22, or by the operation of God's spirit within us to place ourselves under the waterfall of God's blessing. Which one have you chosen and which one will you choose at the end of this hour? So let's ask some questions of our text, verses 22 to 25 of James chapter one. Question number one, am I deceived? Am I deceived? We see this word deceiving yourselves right there in verse 22. Uh, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Being deceived about who you are. Being deceived about your true status with God. Being deceived about the fact that everything's all right between you and God. James is anticipating here the really scary argument that he's going to get into in James 2, verses 14 to 26. In James 2, verses 14 to 26, he says, you say you have faith, but you have no works. The demons believe, but they're demons. He's, he's talking about this scary disconnect between thinking you're okay and really not being okay. I was at the airport once with a group when we all got to the desk, we pulled out our, our driver's licenses and to, to get through, to get on our plane. And one member in our group, when she pulled out her license, the person said, oh, this is expired. You can't go. You know, she thought she was fine. I think I'm fine because there's a driver's license in my wallet. I know it's in there. But if it's expired, if it's not valid, you're not really as safe as you thought you were. The question, question number one is, am I deceived? It says in verse 22, be a doer of the word. The contrast is between being a doer and a hearer only. And a hearer only is self-deceived. But a doer is blessed by God. The hearer only is deceived by him or herself. The doer is blessed by God. What does it mean to deceive yourself? Here, specifically in context, it means a process of self-deception that I'm okay in my relationship with God because I've heard the word, therefore I'm fine. He actually said, you remember, and we'll go back to this, this is a, the, really one of the key verses of James is James 1.18. 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He brought us forth by the word of truth 
that we should be the first fruits of his creatures. And then he says in verse 21, put away the filthiness, put away the wickedness. And you see in verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word. The word being implanted there in verse 21 could actually lead to a form of self-deception. Because for the word to be implanted could lead me to a sort of passivity. Well, God has to implant the word in me. It's not my works, it's God's grace. So it could almost lead to a passivity. In the Roman Catholic Church, this is called ex opere operato, that just when the sacraments are performed, they just automatically work in and of themselves. If the priest says his stuff, you're good to go. But James 1 says that's not how it works. It is that the word of God is implanted by the sovereign spirit of God, not by human works. That is true. But when the sovereign spirit of God implants the word of God, then the hearer becomes a doer 100 times out of 100. The implanted word is such a powerful living seed that it cannot help but bring forth living fruit. And so we have all of these clear commands and we recognize that we are accountable and responsible to follow up on them. This is not, you can, you can sort of trick yourself theologically and philosophically, but this is not complicated. If you know you need a surgical procedure, you are not going to drive to the hospital parking lot, listen to a song on your car radio while you sit in the car parking lot, and then drive home and say that you're fine. You know that you have to enter in and submit yourself to everything that the nurses and the anesthesiologists and the surgical techs and the surgeons have to do. If you want to vote in the next United States election, you know that you can't merely watch a YouTube video about elections. <laughs> you know that you either have to go to the polling place or access that absentee ballot and, and do what it takes to get it done. Don't be deceived that merely hearing has done what it takes to get it done. Don't be deceived. Being deceived is a faulty reasoning process that leads to an inaccurate conclusion about oneself. I heard a good sermon about having a better marriage. Therefore, my marriage is good to go. <laughs> I heard a good sermon about this or that. Therefore, I'm fine. Now, listen, hearing a good sermon about this or that is very important, and I would contend that that is, in and of itself, the very first step of obedience, is placing yourself under the life-giving proclamation and declaration of the, of the sin-shattering, soul-establishing word of Almighty God. But that's only the first step. Then, you have to take some additional steps. I was in a meeting uh, maybe two months ago with uh, several people. The one person I'll name, because I'm going to say something good about them, is uh, Darren was in this meeting. And we're talking about a lot of things. It was a, it was a, uh, a wonderful uh, spirit-led meeting. Many good talks were talked and many good points were pointed and it was great. 
And maybe three weeks after the meeting, Darren poked his head in my office and said, hey, remember that meeting? Have you done anything about it? I was like, like, don't you have somewhere to be? (laughs) I said, what are you talking about? And he said, and he was right. He said, in that meeting, you kind of gave me the impression that you were going to do X, Y, and Z. I said, you know what? You're right. I haven't done that. I'll get it done. It's so easy for any of us to think just because something good was said that, that, you know, we're, we're fine. We ought to appreciate that accountability that leads to us a reckoning with the difference between thinking and doing or between sort of understanding that it's out there and really knowing it in our bones and in our blood. That's the first question. Am I deceived into thinking that hearing is enough? Well, all this talk about doing, there's a second question that is really important to answer. It won't take too long to answer, and it's simply this. Have I got doing in its gospel place? Have I got doing in its gospel place? Because it is not our doing that makes us Christians. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and 10. Ephesians 2, 10, interesting. Ephesians 2, 10 is about our doing. He has ordained good works that you should go and do all of them very diligently and very carefully. But Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says salvation is by God's grace through faith. And even that faith is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works and doing lest anyone should boast. Of him we're saved. It's not our doing that makes us Christians. It's what God has done. But when God has done what he has done, then the Spirit of God brings a new layer and a new level of doing into the fruition of our daily living. All of our good deeds are a big fat zero when it comes to our justification, our salvation. But all of our good deeds are the consequence and, so to speak, the necessary evidence that God has wrought this work of regeneration in our lives Go back to the picture of the tree and the good fruit growing on the tree. It can be explained like this. God does not accept the person because of the works. God accepts the works because of the person. In other words, God is not watching the tree of your life and he's like, okay, 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 uh, 2019, 2020, 2022, okay, fine. Now, finally, you have grown 813 fruits, therefore God will accept you. The way the reformers actually described it was, God does not accept the person because of the works, but the works because of the person. In other words, God says, that tree is mine He adopts us into his family. Therefore, the very fruit that grows in the tree of our life is the fruit of the presence of his Holy Spirit in us. It's important to get gospel clarity here. That's why the second question that can clearly be answered from Scripture is, do I have doing in its gospel place? Third question, have I forgotten? Have I forgotten? Uh, if anyone's a doer of the word, a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. There's the word forgets in verse 24. And then verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. Now, I actually want to talk about the illustration of the mirror, uh, which that 
great old genius C.S. Lewis calls good pretending. I want to talk about that next week. This morning, our third question is, have I forgotten? I just want to draw that, that word forgotten out of verse 24 and out of verse 25. What does it mean to forget? In the scripture, forgetting is a, a moral category. It's not an innocent whoops, it slipped my mind. It's a moral category, right? Listen to Numbers 15. You don't have to turn there. Numbers 15 is about tassels. Anybody have tassels on your outfit today? I'm sure that those watching the live stream wearing a bathrobe, they got the tassels. They got the tassels covered. We don't have them here in the live service, but is the tassels in Numbers 15. There's actually a, I just, I just find this, uh, I don't know what to say. It's just kind of heartwarming, almost adorable that, that God's people do this. The Lord says to Moses, Numbers 15, verse 37, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart, not to follow after your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember to do all my commandments and be holy to the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Have you forgotten? And have you started to follow your own eyes, which you are prone, God said it, not me, to whore after? Have you forgotten the commandments of the word of God? Look, we're all here now hearing the word of God. But will you be, will you be uh, forgetting it once you leave this service or will you be doing it? There's something very special about Sunday morning. God's people are gathered. God's people have prayed. The minister that, the, like the congregation itself, laid hands on the minister to stand up and proclaim the word, not in the power of his own personality, but in the power of the spirit of God. There's a, there's a unique, uh, miraculous occasion every Lord's day. So, when would the thief try to operate his thievery? Even an earthly thief knows to wait and watch you go to the ATM and get your wad of cash and then get it from you. Would not the original thief, the thief from whom all thieving comes, that is the, uh, the, the father of, uh, of thievery and death, the devil, wouldn't, isn't that what he would do? So I gotta tell you, you gotta work hard on Sunday and Monday to remember the word preached. It's fair to say that I work hard at preparing the message. It's even fair to say that I work hard at delivering the message. I'm always watching, although it's annoying that you're wearing masks because I can't see if you're like confused or scowling, you know. I need you to like hold up signs because I can't really see the, actually, please don't hold up signs ever. <laughs> Edit that out of the sermon like it never happened. But, you know, I, I work hard at at least trying to see, you know, are you awake? Is it getting through? Do I need to throw in a different way of saying it? But if it is the case that I work hard at preparing and that I work hard at delivering, it is also the case that God's word says you have to work hard at receiving and remembering the word of God. He hears a sermon best who practices it the most. 
He receives a sermon best, who is humbled by it the most. He retains a sermon best, who remembers it in his walking on the way. Which person remembers and which one is blessed? Do you, have you forgotten or have you remembered? See, it says in the end of verse 25, being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Somebody can take two pages of notes. Don't get me started on you compulsive note takers who are constantly annoyed that my outlines are unclear. I, I, I am bound to make my teaching clear, not necessarily my PowerPoints and my outlines. PowerPoint is of its father, the devil. But it is possible for you to take two pages of perfect notes and even remember what was said in the sermon and then for you sneaky people to use what you remember to judge the people around you and argue with them in a sort of vindictive and self-righteous way. You've remembered it to, to your own detriment. But it is also possible that somebody here writes down one seven-word sentence on the back of a napkin, but she remembers it and puts it to practice in a relationship tomorrow morning. And she is blessed. She is blessed. You see, what is it that keeps you from remembering and doing the word of God? That would be a great, uh, that would be a great uh, question uh, to answer, what is it that keeps you from remembering and doing the word of God? That would be a good question for discussion. I'll give you four discussion starters. You know, lots of things keep us from remembering and doing the word of God. One of the touching and uh, kind of awful things in the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13 of the good soil is his multiple in the birds of the air. He says, after the seed is sown, I almost wish he said, there's one kind of bird that comes and takes the seed away. But our blessed Lord gives us, he, he says there's this wide variety of birds that land and pluck up the seed of the word of God before you can apply it. Here are four that I can think of. Number one, distraction. Distraction. We get distracted. We, we, uh, the word is preached and even for a moment the word gets through. But what happens is we move on to the next thing. We just don't take the time to really work it through. We just sort of paint it on the surface and we don't let it soak in. This is why I'm always commending the, the, the practice of reflection and journaling. We have way too many of us who just skim the surface and end up living an unexamined life. Slow down and let it sink in. One thing that keeps us from remembering and doing the word of God is distraction. Number two, desires. That is, we desire something more than we desire obedience to the word of God. If we're frank, we have to admit that. We hear the word of God and we say, I know the word of God says that. We hear what the word of God says about money and we say, but I really, 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 really want to do this with my money. <laughs> James chapter 2, James chapter 3. We hear what the word of God says about the tongue. 
Oh, but I really, really, really want to let this person have it with my words. Our desires just get in the way. The strongest Christian here would be the Christian who can daily admit, oh God, my biggest problem is my heart. It ain't this, it ain't that, it ain't government this, it ain't church that. My biggest problem is the desires of my own heart. Oh God, if you give me any gift, give me the gift of transforming the desires within. Distraction, desires. Number three, deadness. Just a cold, dead heart. You ever been there? Our hearts are hard. We just don't care. We're around people who appear to care about God and the Bible, but for whatever reason, in at this moment, in this week, in this month, we don't care. We don't feel convicted about our sin. We don't feel the sweetness of our Savior's love. We don't, we're not awed by the fact that he would bleed for us, and our heart is just dead. What do you do when your heart is dead? I'll tell you what you don't do, is you don't give up on God who raises the dead. I'm fine with you giving up on you, but I'm not fine with this sort of cashing it all in and saying, because my heart feels dead, I'm done. That's true if you give up on God, but God raises the dead. Don't give up. God can crack the hardest heart. Ask God. Say, God, I, I don't have any of the right feelings right now. And just say, wait a minute, God. You never commanded me to live by my feelings. You commanded me to live by faith. So, oh God, grant me faith. You're asking God to do what he has promised to do in the hearts of all of his children. Say, God, God, would you finally deliver me from enslavement to my emotions so that 60 days from now, when I feel dead again, I won't give up again, but I'll finally be delivered from enslavement to my feelings, and I will know what it means to walk by faith, not by emotional status. Don't be afraid of emotional deadness. God will get you over it. And maybe a fourth suggestion, discontentment. Discontentment with current circumstances. This is where all of our excuses come from. You hear that point in the sermon, you're like, oh yeah. What he just said is the opposite, uh, what he just said is God's will is the opposite of what I've been doing and thinking. And it lands, but then instead of doing it, you're like, well, my circumstances surely absent me from that for the next 72 hours because my marriage is bad or I'm broke or I'm this or I'm that. You know, we say, if I had this or that, then I could obey. If you are waiting for perfect circumstances in order to obey God, you will live in perpetual disobedience from here until the day that you die. I have only ever obeyed God in imperfect circumstances. That's all, I, that's all I've ever done. That's all I ever will do until this earthly sojourn is over. Please, God, may it be soon. God's not interested in you waiting for better circumstances. We're sitting here playing checkers. If he would just move this one, then I'd be able to do it. And God's playing four-dimensional chess in our lives. And when he tells you to obey, he means for you to obey now, not to wait for the board to be cleared of this or that. Those are four suggestions. Maybe you could add four more if you want to talk about this over lunch. 
But that's to answer the question, am I forgetting to do? Fourth and final question, am I moving toward blessing? Fourth and final question, am I moving toward blessing? Verse 25, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, we'll talk perhaps next week about what that means, that it's called the law of liberty. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I like the ESV translation, particularly of the very last clause. He will be blessed, and we know that could be he or she. It means any person. He will be blessed in his doing. I like that translation because I like their translation, and there are three or four ways to translate it. I like their translation of that preposition in. He will be blessed in his doing. I think it would be an improper translation if that verse was translated, he will be blessed after his doing. As if we obey, and then later comes the reward. There are other scriptures that perhaps say that. That's not what this one's talking about. This one says, he will be blessed in his doing. There is no blessing like the blessing of the divine presence in the obedient steps of the divine children. There is no blessing like the approval of God. When I, when I obey God, perhaps there's been times in your life when this has happened, I have chosen to obey God and I knew that my choice to obey God would make other people in my life angry and I would lose the approval of man. There is no blessing like receiving the approval of God in the midst of deep disapproval and noise from a godless world that hates obedience. We're blessed in our doing. There's no blessing like the blessing of being released from the tyranny of the fear of man. Oh, how about this? Does anybody understand this from the heart? There is no blessing like being freed from the worst impulses of my own lusts than being freed by the liberty of the law of God and walking with a clean conscience. To be blessed in your doing. My mom taught me when I was a very little guy living in the state of Texas which will probably secede from this great union any minute now. <laughs> My mom taught me when I was a very little guy, like I was probably three and we were living in Dallas. She taught me this. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he shines on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all those who trust and obey. I think my mom was trying to teach me in this, in this scabby, dirty, sinful world that there is a blessing in the presence of God in obedience. There's no blessedness like that. Don't you think that's part of what Jesus was referring to in John 15? John 15, 10 and 11 when he said, I've, 
if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. If you obey me, you'll abide in my love. He says in John 15, verse 10, and then in verse 11, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. There's a fullness of joy. So there's a smallness of joy in the sort of, you know, all the, all the shakiness of our emotions and our obedience and disobedience, but there's a fullness of joy in abiding obediently in the favor of Jesus as we walk with the Lord. Knowing Jesus and obeying Jesus is, is the blessing. Think of it like this. There is nothing as soul-suckingly boring as sin. I mean that. There ain't nothing in the universe as soul-suckingly boring and repetitive as sin. Satan's a whole lot of things, but he ain't created nothing, and he never will. There's nothing as repetitive and dusty and rutted and cracked and hollow as sin. But there is nothing as soul-expanding as walking in the love of Jesus, obeying Jesus, and abiding in Jesus. Because every moment that I abide in Jesus' love, this is what happens, that your joy may be full. This is what happens. Every moment that I abide in Jesus' love, my soul's capacity to enjoy and to rejoice is expanded. Won't you let go of your sin, which shrinks you down into a dusty nothing? And won't you embrace the love of Jesus and obeying the word of God, which expands your very ability and capacity to know joy and peace and liberty and love? Church, I, I don't want a hundred things for you. I don't want a billion things for you. I want one thing for you. I want that. I want that for you. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, as, as you're a called and anointed minister of this congregation, I want that for these people. You've placed on my heart to want that for these sisters and brothers who are here. I want each one to abide in your love. I want each one to remember your word. I want each one not to be a hearer who forgets, but a rememberer who abides and who does. So that our very soul, our very spirit, our very self is drawn so much closer to you. Lord Jesus, would you hear my prayer for this beloved flock? And would you answer it that you might be glorified in every soul, in every life? Jesus, this, is, this we ask. In your blessed name, amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.